0: So this very brief title that opens up this psalm, all it says is of David, and that's all we know from the title. However, we know more than just of David uh, regarding that, that the title or, or merely that the psalm was written by him because verse 25 says, says, I have been young, it's very terse, isn't it? And now I'm old. So we know that this is an elderly David. This is David writing in his older years. And I think that's profound when we come to this psalm, especially since this psalm really is a proverb. The psalm is very full, actually, of proverbs. It's many wise sayings. It's many observations from a wise man. Indeed, not just a wise man, but a godly man. You think of what David experienced in his life. I believe it's wise, we learn that it's wise to listen to those, as the King James said, who have hoary head, a hoary head, who have some gray up there. But imagine, if you would, King David, having known so much about him that as a young, fearless shepherd, by the grace of God, he accomplished great feats in protecting his flock, feats that would also come to serve him well, a fearless quality, a courage, a trust in God that would serve him well. As king, he became a giant slayer after he slayed a bear and a lion. He was the anointed of Israel, and even as the anointed, he was oppressed because of his enemy, King Saul, who pursued him into wilderness many times to try to kill him, tried to throw javelins at him to kill him, to stick him to a wall. He was a failing father. He failed in many aspects of his life. He was an adulterer, led to the killing of one of his great captains of his army, his actions as an adulterer. He orchestrated the death of that great captain, and he was a contrite and repentant king. He was a repentant father. He was a humbled man, and he was a successful king, the greatest in the history of Israel. Perhaps God then has prepared David his whole life to write this psalm that is written for our sake. Can you imagine this? David has written this for us. And of course, we know that he writes by the inspiring Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. But we also understand that the Scriptures come to us both by men as God used them, as he carried them along. The idea there is a ship being carried along by a sail. He was moved in his whole life to write this psalm, in a sense, by God. And so as we come to it, we should be struck by that reality, that this is David in his old age writing to us. You should hear him. We should hear him. This is an acrostic psalm. It's an alphabetical psalm psalm. It's written in the Hebrew in in a way probably to be memorized. The psalm should be kept in our hearts then. It's meant so that we would know it, so that we would keep these themes, these truths in our hearts, that we would understand them. Because of the nature of wisdom literature, which I think this falls within that, I'm not going to take this as a, a verse 1 through 40 sort of exegesis uh, for one thing, we don't have enough time for that. Another thing, it doesn't really lend itself to that sort of style. So tonight, I'm going to talk really thematically. As the text moves along, it really moves thematically from verse 12 through verse 21 through verse 32. And each one of those sections work within the section of regard, with regards to the wicked and their doings. Now, when we come to the idea of the wicked and the righteous in this psalm, It's really helpful that we understand these as categories. They're they're not just people who do sin because nobody would be in the righteous category. These are covenant people of God. The righteous people are those who are God's covenant people who, yes, sin, but the trajectory of their life is one that's lived out by faith in the Word of God, not different than us, and a fruit that follows that faith. Yes, Righteousness is developed as a concept of doing good in this psalm, but the righteous is a category of God's chosen people, his covenant people, whom he has shown saving grace to. And that's the theme that we see throughout the psalms, really. Our text, first of all this morning, we are taught to keep our eyes or our gaze off the wicked. And I use the term gaze there because when we say keep our eyes off the wicked, it has a connotation of just peering or just scanning. Gaze has a a connotation of uh, keeping our attention on them. One of the primary emphasis of this psalm is that the wicked may be successful for a time, but it will not last. They will not be established forever. This is one of the great themes running through the entire psalms. And because of this, he begins the psalm in, in the first verse by saying, fret not, yourself because of evildoers be not envious of wrongdoers again in verse 7 fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices fret not yourself it tends only to evil this idea of be a fretting is not necessarily that we're biting our teeth watching the evil or the wicked it has to do with being consumed in a sense it's biting on something it's actually eating it up is, the, is what I understand the Hebrew to be referring to. So fretting is, is that you're taking such stock over them that you're consumed with them. It's like you're eating that. It's you're filled with the wicked. You know, it reminds me of we, every time you look at a, almost a news headline, a popular news headline. You just eat up evil sometimes that way. You're consumed with it. And he warns us, don't do that. Don't become consumed or become fretful over the affairs of evildoers. And even those who prosper in their way, the, evil that, the evildoers who prosper in their ways, who carry out evil devices, it tends only to evil, he says. Now notice what fretting is closely connected with, envy. And this is, I thought about, how does he connect consumed with, with envy. But notice what he says there in verse 7. He says, Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. And here's how he defines him. Over the man who carries out evil devices. You know where envy comes from? Seeing the wicked succeed. How come they're getting a one-up on the righteous all the time? How come they are doing so well, so prosperously, and your people are seemingly becoming the scourge or the enemy you could put it in our cultural terms today that way couldn't you the church has become the enemy of our culture of the state so to speak and why does the wicked seem to be gaining so much momentum doing well and we can be consumed as believers in this day because of their success can't we and we see it we see it in Patterns right in front of our eyes. And that leads to envy. And envy will lead to a pattern of life that follows the wicked. I want to succeed like them. And so pretty soon we find ourselves walking in their paths. It's difficult sometimes not to take the wicked success to heart. It looks like they're succeeding. Sometimes we think of, you know, the, the proverb, the idea that Sin is pleasurable for a season, right? And we think, well, they'll get away from it with it for so long, but sometimes it's a lot longer than we think they should, right? It goes on a lot longer, and we're thinking, okay, God, when are you going to bring judgment? When is the church going to do right? When is when is the society going to wake up? You know, there's all sorts of questions that we start to ask ourselves. And even in verse 35, it starts to look like he calls it a green laurel tree. He says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Now, Alec Motyer says that green laurel tree, the language there describes a tree in its perfect environment. I mean, a tree that is just thriving. You know what I thought of when I read that? Psalm 1. A tree planted by the rivers of water. That's what you expect the righteous to look like in this world. He's saying here, verse 35, I have seen a wicked, a ruthless man. Here's somebody I think he's he's just outwardly evil. And he is planted and he is growing and he is strong. And he seems like he is impervious to winds that blow and weather that comes. He is in its right place. And here's what he says regarding that man in verse 36. But he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Now get, you might, we might just gloss over that. David here is looking at saying, in my experience, I've seen somebody who is so, you could think about it in this way, who's so powerful, who's got everything together, all of the logistics are are figured out he's got servants he's got money he's got power he's got influence and he's a wicked man and he is growing and he is powerful and he says in verse 36 it's almost like i looked up and he was gone in a moment think of nebuchadnezzar it's just a, such a great and immediate example to our minds he was no more though i sought him he could not be found now, verse 36 only hints at the end of the wicked, but the rest of the psalm really focuses in on this. Why shouldn't we fret? Why shouldn't we envy over the wicked and then follow in likeness to their lifestyle and their unbelief? Well, because secondly, we see the understanding, understanding the end of the wicked. We are taught what the end of the wicked will be. First, the success of the wicked is temporary. Nothing more. No matter how long it goes on for, no matter how big they get, in, in a sense, it's always temporary. Look at verse 2. For they will soon fade like the grass. Now, he's just told us don't fret, don't envy. for they, That's because they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the herb. They're not going to last forever. And this is what th- verse 36 indicated. Even the most established of wicked people, wicked establishments, you could say, will not last. The kingdom of our God, like we just read, is forever. That means wicked cannot thrive forever. It's appointed, it's got an end, it will cease. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. You could look hard as you could, can. He will be gone. Verse 20, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. <laughs> the glory of the pastures, but to an agrarian people, that's a great thing. You want your pastures to look green, but after you send your livestock through that pasture, <laughs> the glory of it changes, right? It starts looking like what cows do in a field and not like that green glorious field and they eat it and then they expel that stuff and that's what he says the enemies of the Lord are like they vanish like smoke they vanish away And verse 21 and 22 touch on a theme found throughout the psalm that is the promised land this inheritance that was promised to Israel and to God's people his covenant people he says the wicked borrows but does not pay back The righteous is generous and gives. Now, the two couldn't be more diverse, and that's the contrast there. For, again, here's here's the reason. Those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. There's that promise given to Abraham, and then from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to God's people. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. Now, that cut off harkens back to that blessings and cursings that is encumbered with the law, the giving of the Mosaic law there in Deuteronomy 28. Without going into too much detail, because we don't have time, I take the psalmist here as describing the difference between the character of the wicked. They will succeed by any means necessary. And that is contrasted with the benevolence of the righteous. That's the long view of the righteous. The difference is both temporal and eternal, but God will make the final judgment. Once God deals that judgment blow against the wicked, like he said, he will cut them off. That will happen. Not even a remnant, he says, will be left. He says in verse 28 at the end, but the children of the wicked, the children, that's not a throwaway term. The children of the wicked will be cut off. There will not be a progeny. There will not be a future for them. He's speaking in ultimate terms, verse, terms, verse 34, when the wicked are cut off, not if, but when. Now, here's where we have to, to take a step back and see that this psalm, the, the word cut off is very clearly a curse theme in this psalm. The wicked will experience them. And then we go back, If you, a month ago I preached on Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. If you remember what was said about the servant of the Lord, that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the sake of my people. What makes the difference between the righteous and the wicked? Our standing here is because Christ was cut off in our stead. I think this gives us a, a tremendous understanding what Paul says in Galatians 3, that he became curse for us. We would be where the wicked are in this psalm. We would have no hope if not for Christ. That goes for every human being in this world. Be all, all would be all would be categorized in this category of wicked if Christ was not cut off. You see, cut off here is only for the wicked. We were the ones that sinned. Christ bore that. We need to remember that. Because you come to texts like this and you start seeing these categories of righteous over here, wicked over here, and we start we can be tempted to be very pharisaical and say, well, I'm over here in the righteous category. Look at me. <laughs> Look at me in the righteous category. We're in that category by imputation, by God counting Christ's righteousness ours and our sin his. We are not wicked because, because of Christ. We are not in the category of the wicked. Second in this same, uh, second main point, the vanity of the wicked so we see the end of the the vanity of the wicked. And it makes no difference how well or thought out their schemes are. Uh, this is the wicked. For God is not on their side. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. That is his end. Now, notice the, the, the distinction here, okay? And this is very helpful for us to understand where our focus is. Should be The wicked plots against the, ra- the, the, the righteous and gnashes his teeth on him. And then notice where the attention goes. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. You see, the answer is not what we're going to do to the wicked. That's not the answer. It's not that we, we read this and say, we're going to get back at them. We're going to beat them. We're going to destroy them. It's the Lord who takes vengeance. It's him than who we should look to, which is a theme that we see more and more develop. And that's again the verse, in verse 17, the focus. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. And the, the verb here is emphatic, that he upholds us. Here again, you see the strength, the strength's in the Lord. It's not in us. It's not in us to be in the category in the first place, of the righteous or the wicked. It's in God to bring us into his fold, but then, after that, it's in him to mete out judgment upon our enemies, not in us. Verses 14 and 15 speak to the end and the vanity of the wicked. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. You see the the vanity of that, right? Uh, you, You... there was a poem, I can't remember exactly how it goes. Mock on, mock on, Voltaire Rousseau, mock on, mock on, tis all in vain. You throw the sand against the wind and the wind throws it back again. And the idea there is you have all this, Rousseau was an enemy of, of Christianity, right? And, and you're going to throw, throw this sand at, at our eyes, but the wind is <laughs> going to get it back in yours. That's the same idea. The, the weapons of their warfare are carnal. They cannot achieve anything that God does not allow them to achieve, which is our end, right? And that's the vanity of the wicked. They cannot succeed because God is not for them. That's something we need to hear today. In regards to the wicked, finally, their temporal success and vanity are seen in verse 38. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. Now, we take this to heart as those who've been saved by the grace of God. And we, we understand this doesn't mean that we. Cease to pray for the wicked. It doesn't under, we, we understand that we ought to pray for the wicked. That they might be saved. For family members, friends, co-workers, whatever it is. We ought to pray for their salvation. We ought to seek it. We ought to evangelize. But this is for our encouragement. Such that if they're not they will not prevail against God and us. In a sense, there is no failure for God's people. Do you see this? In light of the wicked, there's no failure. The wicked cannot destroy God's people. They cannot upend his purposes to save us. And so the the great point of this psalm seems to be that we cannot look to them. We cannot be consumed with, our attention cannot be fixed on them because they have no power ultimately to change the pattern in the future, the salvation that God has appointed for us. There is nothing they can do that will prevail against God's purposes. A mighty fortress is our God. And the wicked, no matter how successful they seem, they will not prevail against the gates. uh, The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's another way of saying what this psalm says, again, about the wicked. But the psalm also talks about the righteous. The, the third main point is the way and end of the righteous. And the first way of the righteous is to trust the Lord. Verse 3. Explicitly here. Trust the Lord. Trust Yahweh. And do good. That, those two go together. Trust and obey. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 says this to the new testament church you you, we can look at verse three and say wow that's so pithy and simple he says aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs he says here verse three trust in the lord and do good dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness there's a lot of ways that last phrase can be translated verse three if you pick up any number of translations you'll find it translated various ways the idea is there do what is right productively be about your business you trust in the lord you do good you do what you are called to do and be in the world that is a way that you the righteous those who are called by god god's covenant people ought to live he says aspire to live quietly i'm sorry first thessalonians four eleven through 12 aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs Don't fret about the wicked. Don't envy them. Mind your own affairs and work with your own hands as we have instructed you. That you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That would be a wise text to memorize for us in these days. Number four, verse four, I mean, delight yourself in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, verse three. Verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, notice, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him. So you have trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. That is, He will vindicate His people. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently before Him. And and be still just demonstrates the implicit trust you have. Verses 3, 4, 5, and 7 here, each Direct our attention to Yahweh and trust, delight, uh, committing ourselves. And be still, that is, be patient for the Lord to act. Each one of these is at least a component of saving faith. Delighting ourselves, trusting in Him, committing our way before Him, patiently waiting for Him. All of these are implied in faith that saves sinners. These things contrast fretting over and envying the wicked. And our attention then is not on them, but on God, who when he is delighted in, will give us the desires of our hearts. Isn't that something? That verse is something that we usually uh, uh, memorize at a young age. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Even in the English language, it comes across very easy to memorize. What does that mean? Doesn't mean the, the prosperity gospel nonsense. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, the desires of our heart will be in tune to what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Ultimately, that finds its its ground and its influence in God Himself. He becomes the desire of our heart. Delighting ourselves in the Lord, He gives us Himself. Nothing is greater than that. Nothing is fulfilling in, as God. Nothing comes close. Therefore, in all of these things, we, in our attention, are called to fix it upon God. And waiting patiently on the Lord, in verse 8, says that we will refrain from anger. It will help us, it will enable us to obey Him. Trusting Him, as He says, trust Him, do good, delight yourself, commit your way, be still. All of these things will enable us to obey Him. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Well, I think that's not so easy to do in light of the wicked. You know, we're coming upon a day when the wicked might might have the upper hand politically, might take away our freedoms as believers. I don't pray for it. I pray that's not the case. But in that time, are we going to strike back when we're str- str- stricken? Are we going to react when we're acted against in an, in an evil way? If we're trusting the Lord, I think we'll be able to obey this. We won't revile when we are reviled. We won't curse when we're cursed. When people persecute us, we won't seek their evil. We'll refrain from anger. We'll forsake wrath. Most be noticed that the psalm clearly declares God to be absolutely trustworthy. Here in verse 23 the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his ways. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. Listen to this. This is so, so profound. For the Lord upholds his hand. God is absolutely trustworthy. In fact, he's only trustworthy. No one else is trustworthy, trustworthy like God. But notice this benevolence and gentle leading. This is God Almighty. <laughs> the way that he is described here is so profound. That last phrase in verse 24, for the Lord upholds his hand. Think of this. Every one of us who's held a child's hand can get that analogy. Now the child itself cannot stabilize itself. Though he fall, when he's cast headlong, that he's going for that head first fall, he has no ability to stabilize himself or herself. So it is with us and God. You and I, we would have no direction, we'd have no hope without God. And so the idea here, the idea here is very simple. It's God who holds us up. It's Him who stabilizes us. If we find ourselves patiently waiting for Him, persevering in grace and in faith, committing ourselves to Him, yes, He is to be trusted, but he holds us so as not so as to keep us from destruction. That headline headlong fall, that's destruction. And it's God who keeps us, and it's a it's a beautiful thing. But it's also a humbling thing, isn't it? You and I are the children here. We're the little child that he's holding on to. And that's where faith is so intrinsic to the Christian life. Second, notice the portion of the righteous. Verse 16: Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken. That's their ability to get gain. But the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. Now, this is based on the forever heritage of verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. Their heritage will remain forever. And the perishing of the wicked in verse 20. Verse 19 then says that even when God's people lack in this world's good, they have abundance. Because the contrast is between 18 and 19, that eternal inheritance and the perishing of the wicked, when he says in verse 18, they have abundance. Not always do God's people in this life have abundance in worldly needs. We know that's true By experience today, we know that's true during the early church in Jerusalem. They were struggling severely. Even an impoverished church in Macedonia, probably Philippi, gave to the church in Jerusalem because it was even more impoverished. He is saying here in ultimate terms, because God is for us, we have abundance. We never lack. And that is true of us. One of the themes of the Psalms are the allusions to the wicked being taken out of the land while the righteous inherit the land. We looked at a few of those verses. Verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. That's very uh, memorable in our hearing because Jesus says that in Matthew 5.5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit, inherit the earth, he says. But in verse 22, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 29 The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Now we saw that the wicked will be cut off. Now we see many times that the righteous will inherit the land. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. That Greek word can be translated land. Most translate it earth, and for good reason, I think. Now this idea of the promised land that was given to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and to Israel, uh, as God's possession, many believe is just waiting for that day when when Israel as a nation is brought back to God, meaning the majority of, of Israel in the world has come to faith in Christ. In Romans 11, it speaks about that. And so then there will be a, a big swath of uh, people from that, that uh, race enter back into Israel, and then the millennial kingdom will happen, and that will be the fulfillment of This promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't think that encompasses the full measure of what we see in Scripture regarding the promise of the land. And I don't have time to go through that. But what we see in the promised land of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, is that the prophets start speaking of more than just the land of Palestine, but the land, meaning the encompassing surrounding land that surrounds Palestine. And then we come to the New Testament And we see words like the meek shall inherit the earth. We see that in Romans 4.13, Abraham was promised not just the land in a small sort of station in Palestine, but the the word there, the Greek word that Paul uses is is the word that is translated the world. So the promise to Abraham that he would be an inheritor of the world, Romans four. Thirteen, Second Peter, three thirteen, also says, righteousness will dwell in the world, the whole world, the new heavens and new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. I believe, as we look at this text, we should not have a small, merely view of, of Palestine being given to God's people. I think we should have a view, this big. New heavens, new earth, promissory view when we come to this text of of Psalm 37. All these promises, verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, verse 34, you will inherit the land we should take as those promises that are fulfilled as ours in the new covenant through Christ and all of God's people, Israel, Gentile believers, all are one in Christ who will inhabit the new heavens and new earth. That's all I can say, but I believe this is a rich psalm that when we understand that, we should apply these promises to us. Third, the righteous way. Verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. Romans 12:9 said, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Here says it the other way, doesn't it? Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. There is no judgment against living in a righteous way. Though the world may hate us, God is the one who vindicates his people. Verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Is that my daughter over there? Just is she preaching along with me? <laughs> hey, are you preaching with Dada? <laughs> You can do that at Sunday night. You can. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Now, I wish I had a lot more time to draw this out. Notice verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart. Now, that's part of the new covenant promise, isn't it? Jeremiah 31 Hebrews chapter 8, this new covenant is that the law of God will be written on our hearts. Here, verse 31, he doesn't say it exactly the same way. The law of God is in his heart. It's it's almost like David is speaking to the reality of God's covenant people of all time, but, but we understand that this is explicitly promised to those of us in the new covenant. I really believe we need to start seeing a deeper connection again between the Old and the New Covenant. Too much do we see this cutting up and slicing up and dividing in ultimate terms these two uh, Old and New Testament, I should say. God's promises and his fulfillment. What he was doing then by way of promise but people were being saved by grace through faith then in the promise and the fulfillment that comes through Christ. Here, That's just a profound verse 31. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. And that's what it takes. Jesus said this, but what comes out of a mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. This is the way of the righteous. If our heart's not changed... the pattern of our life will not change. Fourth, the endless future of the righteous. Finally, this too is contrasted with the desire of the wicked for us and their end. They want us to die. They want us to cease. They will not succeed, we've already seen. And we remember there's no future for them. But our future is certain. But it's also tied up in the contrast of their judgment. Verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Verse 33, the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Our Lord will not abandon us. I'm sorry. He, yes, he will not abandon us. He won't abandon us to the power of the wicked. The wicked themselves will cease. They will end. God's people will not. Verse 37, mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. The salvation of the righteous, in verse 39, is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Listen to that again. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. It's not themselves. It's the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them, delivers them, delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The wisdom of an aged David. This psalm is an anthem of certainty. Not of those who trust in themselves, those who peer and have their focus on the wicked and follow in their likeness, but those who, by the grace of God, trust in God. And who take refuge in him. And here's what I want to point out, and finally, and this is very brief. Oftentimes it's pointed out in the New Testament, you see it's about eternity. In the Old Testament, it's just about temporal. (laughs) It's just about the temporal benefits. It's all about the temporal in the Old Testament. I heard that that a thousand times if I've heard heard it once. This psalm is all about our hope being in God because the wicked will come to an end, but the righteous will not. This is about eternal values. This psalm is about eternal hope. Eternal, uh, uh, as I like to say, the eternal economy. This This is Christian living. This is Christian hope. This is the gospel here that we're hearing. And it's in God. He is our salvation. Let's pray. Our Father. I pray that this is a lot to take in for anyone. I pray that we would just benefit uh, to take in even a portion, even a small portion of it. What a gracious and merciful God and heavenly Father you are to us. You hold our hands. Lord, we would stumble every day. We would fall every day if you didn't hold our hands. Christ said, no one is able to pluck you out of my hand. My Father who is greater than I has given you to me and no one is able to pluck you out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Father, thank you. Preserve us. Cause us not to keep our focus and our attention on the wicked, on this world. They are passing away. They will not succeed. I pray that our attention, our trust, Our way would be committed to you. Our delight would be yours, Lord, and that we would patiently wait for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.